invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be looking beginning at verse 18, and as is our habit here at times, uh, we'll be ignoring the chapter break, going right through to verse 5 of chapter 2. Uh, verse 17, I'm sorry, is where we'll begin. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 down through chapter 2, verse 5. Let's all stand together for the reading of God's Word. First Corinthians 1, beginning with verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs... And Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Our Father and our God, we ask now that you would help us during this time as we seek to study this passage of Scripture, bring clarity to this text, help each of us to walk away understanding what it is that the Spirit of God is saying to us through the words of this <clears throat> passage of Scripture. Pray for guidance. Uh, pray for me that I would be able to clearly present uh, the depths of this doctrine that Paul is laying out in this passage. Help it to be an encouragement, a comfort, uh, and an, an instruction to each one of us. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever wondered why different people respond to the gospel differently? Some people hear the message that Jesus died for them, that he rose from the dead, that he offers them salvation from their sins, and they are moved. They believe the gospel, they repent of their sins, they give their lives to Christ, and from that day forward, they are different people. Their lives are forever changed because they heard the gospel. Others hear the very same message, and nothing happens. Maybe they don't believe it, maybe it seems far-fetched to them, Maybe they do believe it, but they're unwilling to turn from their sins and submit to Christ's lordship. They just feel nothing. Even in the same household, often we see you have kids who are all raised in church with godly parents, uh, taught the word of God from the time they are young. One kid grows up to be a committed follower of Christ, and another totally rejects Christianity, maybe becomes an atheist. How is that possible? Why is that? What causes some to receive the gospel and others to reject it. 
Our text today will answer that question, though I must warn you that in answering the question, it will also raise many more questions. Before we dive into the text, I want to clarify one term for you. We're going to see it all throughout this passage, and that's the term preaching. Uh, Often we think of preaching as what I'm doing right now, a pastor standing behind a pulpit at a church explaining and applying the Word of God. That is not what Paul is talking about here. Most of the time when preaching is referred to in the New Testament, what's being referred to is what we would call today evangelism. It's not so much a pastor or uh, someone that we would call today a preacher explaining the Bible to Christians. Rather, preaching in the New Testament is when Christians tell non-Christians the gospel. When a Christian shares with a lost friend or relative or neighbor or maybe even a complete stranger how Jesus died for their sins, how he rose from the dead, how he offers them salvation and new life. That is what Paul means here by preaching. He also refers to it as the word of the cross. So again, it's not someone standing behind a pulpit and teaching a sermon. Rather, it is a Christian sharing the gospel with a non-Christian. So when you see that terminology come up in this passage, the preaching of the cross, the word of the cross, don't think of me or a pastor standing in front of a church. Think of Peter on the day of Pentecost, telling the crowds of people in the street how they can have their sins forgiven. Think of Philip sitting with the Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8, explaining to him how Christ died for his sins and how he can be saved. Think of Peter visiting in the home of Cornelius with his family gathered together as they're listening to him tell them about Christ. All of that is what Paul is talking about here when he uses the term preaching. That's the word of the cross, the message, the gospel that we give to those who do not yet know the salvation that Christ offers. And it's not something just pastors do. It's something that all Christians can do. And in Paul's case, it was something he committed his life to. As we saw in our study of the book of Acts, Paul traveled all throughout the ancient world, going from city to city, spreading this news that Jesus had died and risen and that he offered salvation from sins. And all of that leads to our text, beginning with verse 17, where Paul says that Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, get this clear because it's going to be critical to understanding the rest of the passage. Paul says here that the cross of Christ, the message of the gospel, would be robbed of its power if he tried to preach it with words of eloquent wisdom. In other words, if you would allow me to turn an adjective into a verb, we don't clever people into becoming Christians. We don't, by our human wisdom and eloquence, convince people to follow Jesus. No, we just preach the message. We trust that God will do the work through the gospel. Paul is saying that the simple gospel message of Jesus' death for our sins is powerful in and of itself without our cleverness, without our eloquence or wisdom. The gospel is the power of God to save, and it doesn't need any of our help. Verse 18, Paul continues, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There are two kinds of people, two kinds of responses to the gospel, those who are perishing, those who are being saved. Both of those, by the way, are present tense participles in Greek, so that is an accurate translation to say those who are perishing, those who are being saved. If you are a Christian, you are being saved. Now that might sound confusing at first because we tend to think of salvation as simply something in the past, and we could take the rest of the sermon to explain all of what's being communicated there, but I've only got a short time. We have a lot of ground to cover. So here's the 60-second version of my explanation. See if you can get the idea. Our salvation has a past, a present, and a future. We were saved in the past, we are being saved now, and we will finally be saved in the future. So we can think of our salvation from sins either as a past reality, a present reality, or a future reality. And the theological terms for these phases of salvation are justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification refers to the moment 
when we turned in faith to Christ. When we heard the gospel, we turned from our sins, we embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord. At that moment, God declares us righteous. He forgives all of our sins, past, present, and future. He cleanses us and gives us eternal life. That is justification. That's the sense in which we were saved in the past, in that moment. Sanctification refers to the work of God in us from that moment on throughout the rest of our lives, as he is molding us and shaping us to be the people that he wants us to be. And we should see in our lives over time increasing love, increasing joy, increasing righteousness. That's the process of sanctification as God is transforming us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Glorification refers to the day that we will stand before God and our lives on earth are ended. We're told in Scripture that on that day we will be changed in that moment. We will be given a new body. Our old flesh will be laid aside along with our sinful nature, and we will all stand before him in perfect righteousness, never to sin again. That is when our salvation will be complete, when we will finally and forever be freed from sin. So there's a sense in which we are saved, a sense in which we are being saved, and a sense in which we await our final salvation. I hope that all makes sense. If not, come Wednesday night and ask questions and we can talk further. That's the best I can do in this brief time. What Paul is addressing in this verse is the very question that we began with. How is it that some people hear the message of Christ and are transformed by it? Others hear the same message and reject it. Paul says that the word of the cross, the preaching of the gospel, seems foolish to some. But to us who are saved, it is powerful. It changes us. It changes our lives forever. And the rest of the passage is going to go on to explain why that is. Why is it that some consider the message of Christ foolish and others, it is a power that saves and transforms their lives? Verse 19, Paul continues, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, maybe helpful to add in your mind as we're reading this passage, the word apparent, when you see it talking about wisdom and folly, the gospel message seems to be foolishness to the world. It's a simple message that offends our pride. Now, this was especially the case for the Greeks, as we'll see in the rest of the passage. But Paul is saying here that those who think of themselves as wise, the philosophers and debaters of this age, they haven't found God through their wisdom and education. And we see this even today. Uh, isn't it something how so many smart, intelligent, educated people reject God? It always amazes me that scientists today largely deny the possibility of there even being a God. These are people who spend their lives studying creation with all of its wonder, with all of its complexity. Yet in their worldly wisdom, they do not find God. And Paul says that God cannot be known through our human wisdom. It is only through the preaching of the gospel that we come to know him. The message that Jesus died and rose again for our salvation seems to many to be absurd. Verse 22, Paul explains further. For Jews demand signs, <clears throat> and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So Jews demand signs. This is something seen repeatedly throughout the ministry of Jesus. They kept demanding that Jesus prove his identity as the Messiah through supernatural signs and wonders. And no matter how many miracles Jesus performed, it never seemed to be enough to convince these hard-hearted Jews. Matthew 12, verse 38 says, some of the scribes and Pharisees, so these are the apparently wise people, the scribes, the experts of the law, they come to him and say, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, 
But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Speaking there of his death and resurrection, yet even that sign wasn't enough to convince most of the Jews. They demand proof over and over before they will be convinced. And so to them, the preaching of the cross And all that Jesus did there, dying for our sins, is unconvincing. Greeks, on the other hand, seek wisdom, and that really is true. During this time period, philosophy was a big deal in Greece. Just a few miles north of Corinth was the city of Athens, the center of Greek philosophy. Maybe you've heard of Aristotle or Plato or Socrates. All of them lived in Athens shortly before Christ's birth. So these were the leading Greek philosophers. And their influence had continued in this tradition of philosophy. And this was the culture of Greece at the time. They were all about profundity, complicated theories about the way the world works. You remember in Acts 17 when Paul is called before the Stoics and the philosophers in Athens, he proceeds to tell them the gospel of Jesus And when they hear about the resurrection, they mocked him. It seemed absurd to them. So the gospel offends the Jews because they're demanding signs, and the gospel offends the Greeks because they're seeking wisdom. And to them, this message seems absurd. Back to our text, verse 22, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. I like the NLT version of verse 23. It says, we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. The message of Christ's crucifixion for sins was a stumbling block to the Jews, partly because they thought of the Messiah as a powerful military leader who would conquer the occupying Romans and reclaim the nation of Israel, and then he would establish himself as king in Jerusalem. This is what they were looking for the Christ to do. Instead, Jesus came and died. That didn't fit their understanding of the Messiah as this conquering king. They had misunderstood the prophecies of Christ. They misunderstood the nature of his kingdom, which is a spiritual kingdom. They thought the kingdom would come through military rebellion against Rome, but in reality, the kingdom of Jesus expands through the preaching of the gospel and the making of disciples of Christ throughout the world. So they had it all wrong. And for them to now embrace Jesus as their Messiah, as people like Paul are going around preaching the gospel, urging them to repent of their sins and embrace Christ, that would mean that they would have to admit that everything they had understood about Christ, everything that they had believed about the Messiah was wrong. It was a stumbling block to them. It offended their pride. The Gentiles, on the other hand, just found the whole thing absurd. They were far too sophisticated, far too educated, to believe that a man dying on a cross was actually God bearing the sins of the world. That seemed like foolishness to them. And so Paul is saying, we go around preaching Christ, preaching about his death on the cross, and it's very hard for Jews to accept this message. It's a stumbling block to them. It offends their pride. And everybody else, the Gentiles, thinks it's nonsense. Question, who's left? We've got Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews here. Jews won't believe because they're offended. The the Gentiles won't believe because it sounds like foolishness to them. So who exactly is left? Who is going to believe if the Jews won't and the non-Jews won't either? And here's where we get to the key verse of the whole passage, verse 24. Paul says, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Left to themselves, Jews seek signs. Left to themselves, Greeks seek wisdom. But we aren't left to ourselves. Some of both groups, Paul says, Jews and Greeks, are saved by this message of Christ. And notice what makes the difference. It is the call of God. The Jews demand signs, and they reject a Christ who would die on a cross. And the Greeks reject the gospel because it doesn't seem wise to them. It seems like uh, nonsense. But to those whom God calls, this message becomes the highest wisdom that they've ever found. 
To those who are called, the gospel of Christ will powerfully save them. Both Jews and Gentiles, those who are called to God to salvation, to them, Christ is the power of God and wisdom of God. Now, when we talk about the call of God, we're not simply talking here about the preaching of the gospel. Paul has been speaking about the word of the cross, the preaching of the gospel, going out and facing universal rejection. The Jews won't accept it. The Gentiles won't accept it. So the call of God is not simply the proclaiming of the message. God calling someone is an internal activity. In other words, when people hear the preaching of Paul, the gospel of Christ being proclaimed, and they're changed by it, when they believe and they give their lives to Christ, that is a result of God calling them to salvation. So the call of God, you could think of it as a summoning. As Paul and others preached the gospel, those whom God was calling on the inside responded with faith and repentance. Paul gives the outward call through his preaching, but what made the difference was the internal call of God, drawing sinners to repentance. The call of God creates the very thing that it commands. Make sure you get this point clear in your minds because it will help you make a lot of sense of the, the entire New Testament. The call of God in salvation creates the very thing that it commands. So when God calls someone, he's not just asking them to turn from their sins, to believe in Christ. No, he is actually causing them to respond that way. The call of God creates what it commands. Here's an illustration to maybe help clarify this. Maybe you've had this experience before where someone is in a deep sleep and you need to wake them up. And so what do you do? You lean over them, they're laying there sound asleep, and you say to them, wake up. And as soon as you say that, they wake up. The very thing you're telling them to do, the sound of your voice is actually causing it to happen. That's the call of God. It is when he speaks to our hearts and causes us to believe the gospel and submit to him. Now, that's an okay illustration, I think, but it's not great because it's possible that you might yell, wake up, and the person still doesn't wake up. Maybe they're so sound asleep, or maybe you didn't yell loud enough or something. Whereas the call of God always produces the thing that he commands. So let's see if we can find some biblical illustrations that will be better. Let's start at the beginning. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light and there was light. That's the call of God. God speaks into darkness and nothingness, and he says, let there be light. And the power of the call of God creates the thing that he just commanded. Now, full disclosure, I didn't come up with that illustration. Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 to illustrate this very thing, the call of God in salvation, how God draws us to himself. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, beginning with verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So these are the ones who reject the message of Christ and consider it foolishness. Verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the call of God. The same God, Paul says, who said at the beginning of the creation of the world, let there be light, and with those words created light out of nothing. That same God calls in our hearts and causes the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ to shine. It is the call of God that causes us, as we hear the gospel, to believe it and respond with obedience. Here's another illustration, John 11. Jesus' friend Lazarus has died. He's buried in a tomb. He's been dead for four days at this point. And Jesus stands outside the tomb of Lazarus in verse 43. He cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
and the man who had died came out. That's the call of God. Nobody who saw that take place thought Lazarus raised himself from the dead. Everybody understood it was the voice of Christ calling to Lazarus that gave life to this dead man. It was the power of the call of God. The call creates the very thing that it commands. And again, I didn't come up with that illustration either. The Bible often uses the image of a dead person coming back to life as an illustration of how God calls us to salvation. Ephesians 2 verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul says all of us at one time were dead in our sins, walking in disobedience and rebellion against God, we were dead. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So you and I were dead in our sins, and he made us alive. He called you. Maybe one more illustration would be Mark chapter 4. Jesus is here with his disciples in a ship on the Sea of Galilee, and a violent storm comes upon them. They're afraid that they're about to sink. Meanwhile, Jesus is sleeping at the stern of the ship. Waves are coming over the side. The ship is beginning to fill with water. The wind is tossing them around so they can't control the ship. And in their desperation, the disciples wake up Jesus, and verse 39 says, He awoke, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. That's the call of God. Peace be still. When God calls, he causes what he commanded to take place. So we return to the question that we started with today. Why are you saved? Why are your sins forgiven? Why do you have eternal life? Answer, because Christ died for your sins. That's true. Let's go a little deeper than that, because his death doesn't save everyone. Some people are still in their sins. Some people will face the judgment of God after this life. So why are you specifically saved? Answer, because when you heard the message of Christ, you repented of your sins and believed in the gospel. Again, that's true. But let's go deeper still. Why did you respond that way? Again, a lot of people hear the same message of Jesus and they reject it. So why is it that you turned from your sins and submitted your life to Jesus? And the answer to that question is only one of two possibilities. Either there is something in you that makes you just a little bit smarter or a little bit better than others who reject the gospel, or it's because God opened your heart to believe and repent. And Paul says it's the latter. God called you. That's why the preaching of the cross to you was the power of God to save. Because the very same voice of God that said, let there be light and created light, the same call of God that said, Lazarus, come forth and caused his heart to beat again, the same call of God that said to the storm, peace be still, and it stopped, that same powerful God called you. And he said to your heart, believe and be saved. You are saved because God called you. Now, you might want to go just a little bit deeper and ask one more question. Why did God choose me and not someone else? And the answer to that is, I don't know. Sorry. As frustrating as it may be, I don't have all the answers. Here are a few other passages where the New Testament speaks about this call of God that causes us to believe the gospel and turn from our sins. For example, just for starters, look earlier in this very chapter, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. Paul addresses this letter to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Or we could look at Romans 1, where Paul again addresses his letter to the believers in Rome, 
And he says that they were called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. We can look at Peter's words, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You belong to Christ, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Or you could look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's probably one of the clearest passages in all the New Testament on this subject. Paul says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God chose you to believe the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. God chose us to be saved. He called us to have eternal life. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. One more. Romans 8 verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Your salvation from beginning to end was and is a work of God in you. The reason that you responded to the gospel with faith and repentance is because God was at work in your heart, drawing you to himself. Back to our text, verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And again, I think here the word apparent is helpful. What humans consider to be the foolishness of God is wiser than what humans think of as wisdom. Verse 26, Paul continues, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Paul says, think of what you were when God saved you. When God called you and you responded to the preaching of the gospel with faith and repentance. Paul says, most of you were not wise or influential. You weren't the leaders of Corinth. You weren't the most educated or sophisticated. You were pretty normal people. Verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Paul says from the world's perspective, you are nothing. So why is it that some hear the message of Jesus and believe and others don't? Paul says it's not because of anything in you. Not many wise. It's not because you were so smart. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. In other words, God doesn't choose to draw you to himself based on anything in you. And it's also not based on anything in the preacher that causes people to be saved. He said earlier, it's not like if we had a more eloquent person explaining the gospel, then maybe that person would have accepted it. No, Paul has already said, the power is not in human eloquence or wisdom. It is in the simple proclamation of the gospel. So it's nothing in the preacher that determines the result, and it's nothing in the person hearing the message. The answer is the call of God. That is what determines if we will respond to the gospel or not. God says that Paul, that, I'm sorry, Paul says that God chose mostly unwise, unimpressive people so that everyone would recognize he was the one doing this. Now, God does choose some wise. He does choose some educated, some influential. Notice Paul doesn't say here, God didn't choose any wise or any powerful. He just says God didn't choose many. The point is, it's not because of anything in us that we come to Christ and others don't. It's not because we're superior in any way. It is simply because he chose us. You see that theme clearly in these verses. God chose, God chose, God chose. If you read carefully throughout the New Testament, you will find over and over and over again the clear and undeniable teaching that God chooses those whom he saves. We don't come to Christ of our own volition. We come because God draws us in our hearts. Jesus said this in John 6, verse 44, No man 
sorry, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, why does all this matter? Why do we need to be told that we are not responsible for our own coming to Christ, but that God was the one who did this work in our heart? What practical effect should this concept of the call of God have in our lives? One effect it should have is to take away any pride we might have for being Christians. You didn't believe the gospel and turn to Christ because you were such a good person or because you were wiser than others who rejected the same message. No, Paul says the only reason you're saved today is because of God. And so he says in verse 29 of our text, here's the result of this action of God calling us to be saved, choosing us so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Just in case you missed the point, verse 30, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, not because of you, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you properly understand this doctrine of the call of God to salvation, if it really sinks in, it will obliterate any sense of pride or superiority that you could possibly have. I didn't come to Christ because I was so humble, because I was smarter than others, because I was spiritually sensitive, and so that's why I responded to the message with faith and repentance. No, I was dead, and God made me alive. I was lost, and he found me. I was blind, and he opened my eyes. There was nothing in me that caused me to respond to Christ. It's all because of what he did in my heart. And I have no idea why God was so kind to choose me. This should break our pride completely. God did this so no human being can boast in his presence. It was all because of him that we are in Christ Jesus. So let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. He should get all the credit. Another effect that this doctrine has on us is to comfort us in our evangelism. As we share Christ with others, as we invite them to be saved, we don't have to worry about if we're eloquent enough, if we're a skilled enough teacher to have just the right words to bring someone to Christ. Paul says all we have to do is clearly present the message. Verse 1 of the next chapter, Paul continues, And I, when I came to you, brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Paul says, when I came to Corinth, we read about that in Acts 18, he says, I didn't come trying to impress you with wisdom or eloquence because Paul understood that the power to save isn't in us, it isn't in our wisdom and our eloquence and our lofty words. The power is in the gospel and the Spirit of God working on the inside to call sinners to salvation. And so verse 2, Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says, I decided when I came to Corinth, I was just going to give you a simple message of Jesus' death for your sins and his resurrection, that he would offer you salvation, just that, just the simple gospel message. That's all that I came with. And verse 3, on top of that, Paul was in a really bad state when he got to Corinth. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. We know from Acts that Paul was struggling during this time of his ministry. Paul had been imprisoned and beaten in Philippi. He'd been run out of town in Thessalonica. People were seeking his life and they followed him to Berea. And again, he barely escaped death there. Then in Athens... He's given a platform to speak to the philosophers. He presents Christ to the educated men of the Areopagus, and they mostly laughed at him and rejected his message. And so now as Paul comes to this sin-filled city of Corinth, he is very discouraged. Paul is discouraged because of the seeming failure of the mission in Greece so far. He's discouraged because he's alone. Luke and Timothy and Silas had been left behind at previous cities, the new churches that had been established there, they were left there basically to pastor and lead those churches. And Paul has had to flee for his life all alone, and now he heads to Corinth. He says he's in fear 
in weakness and much trembling. Paul is fearful of the constant threats on his life everywhere that he's gone in Greece so far. And add to all of this, Paul runs out of money in Corinth. Again, you read about this in the book of Acts. He has to pick up a job, which means he's not able to really dedicate the time he'd like to to his ministry. And so he's here in Corinth working a job to supply his own living while simultaneously trying to get a church started in this sin-filled, idolatrous city of Corinth. He's all alone, he's afraid, and he's discouraged. He was not an impressive sight when he came to Corinth. He was in a bad mental state. And yet, in all of his weakness, in all of his fear, in all of his trembling, the simple message of the gospel, not preached with eloquence or wisdom, was powerfully used by God. He says in verse 4, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. So he says, I didn't use persuasive words of human wisdom. I didn't use clever rhetoric. Rather than using cleverness or persuasive speeches, Paul says, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. So I preached a very plain, simple gospel message, verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul intentionally avoided rhetorical eloquence in his preaching of the gospel so that the faith of his hearers would not rest on his brilliance as a speaker, but on the powerful message of the cross. He wants his hearers to understand that God is the one who worked in their hearts to draw them to salvation. It has nothing to do with his eloquence or his wisdom. And so this doctrine of the call of God should give us comfort in our evangelism. We don't have to worry about being the smartest, the best speaker, the most able. We just have to clearly present the gospel of Christ and trust that he will, work, that he will use it. And this leads to the last effect that this doctrine should have on us, and that is to give us boldness and confidence to tell others about Christ. God has called some to salvation. And we can know that as we're faithful to present the gospel, no matter how hard-hearted someone may seem, no matter how sophisticated they may be, we don't need to be intimidated by that. If God is the one who calls them to be saved, it's going to be through a simple proclamation of the gospel. And God will break through the human heart. And so there's no telling who he might call next. And so we ought to keep sharing Christ and trusting that God will use it, no matter how unimpressive our speaking ability may be. When Paul was at Antioch in Pisidia, we read of the response of the people in Acts 13, and there's many statements like this in the book of Acts. We're just going to look at two, just so you can kind of see how this works. Paul presents Christ to them, and it says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and notice, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Paul came into the city and preached with confidence, knowing that God had appointed some to eternal life and that he would call them, as Paul was proclaiming the message, calling them on the outside, God was calling them on the inside and drawing them to Christ. Acts 16, verse 14, Paul is preaching in the city of Philippi and we read, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And it says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And she becomes the first convert in the city of Philippi. The fact that God opens hearts, that he draws us to salvation, should give us boldness to present the gospel to the lost and trust that he will use our feeble efforts to save those whom he has chosen. Now, what does all of this have to do with division in the church at Corinth? Now, you remember last week, we began with verse 10, and I said that all the way from there to the end of chapter 4, Paul is dealing with the issue of division in the church. And anytime that we study the Bible, it's always important to keep in mind the context, to try to understand the flow of the book. Paul has just instructed this church to be united. We saw that last week. To stop considering themselves as followers of Paul or followers of Apostle Apollos, uh, dividing along the lines of who their preferred Bible teacher was. 
And Paul's argument in this text is that the human instrument that brought you to Christ is irrelevant. God saved you. And God used a simple message of the gospel to powerfully draw you to himself. And you guys have apparently missed the point. You've become fixated on the wisdom or the eloquence of the preacher as if that's what caused you to respond to the gospel. And so he says, it wasn't anything in me. It wasn't anything in Apollos that did that. It was the power of God calling you through a simple presentation of the word of the cross. Our faith doesn't rest in the wisdom of Paul. Our faith doesn't rest in the eloquence of Apollos. It rests in the power of God. Paul isn't the one who caused these Corinthians to be awakened spiritually. It was the internal call of God that gave them new life. And so here is Paul's argument. It's important to get this because it's going to help fit in the rest of the next few chapters. Apollos and Paul and Peter, their ministry wasn't successful because of their abilities, because of their eloquence, because of their wisdom. It had nothing to do with them. It was the power of the gospel that saved those whom God was calling. God's work in the human heart is what was bringing sinners to Christ, not the cleverness or ability of the speaker. And so Paul is telling them, essentially, it's dumb to be identified with any human teacher because they are not the reason you were saved to begin with. God saved you through a simple gospel message. It really didn't matter who was the one giving it. It wasn't a brilliant human oration that caused you to be saved. And so to these Corinthians, Paul says, don't boast in Paul. Don't boast in Peter. Don't boast in Apollos. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. A couple of closing thoughts before we conclude today. First, we learn from this text that our primary concern in evangelism should be clarity, not cleverness. As you try to present the gospel to friends and loved ones and neighbors and coworkers, as you invite them to become followers of Christ, don't worry about being eloquent. Focus on clearly communicating the message. The power is in the gospel, not in human abilities. And by the way, I think to a degree this also transfers to pastors teaching the word of God in churches. My primary concern in preparing a sermon sermon should not be eloquence or cleverness. My primary goal should be clarity. I want to explain the text so that you really get it, because I don't want you to be changed as a result of my lofty speech or my wisdom, but rather I want it to be the power of the word of God at work in your life. That's why everything we do as a church is centered around scripture. You come each Sunday and you hear me teaching a passage of the Bible for the majority of our time together. You come Wednesday night and we study that passage more, answering questions, digging deeper into it. Everything that we do as a church is devoted to the words of Scripture because that's where the power of God is to change us. It's not human wisdom. It's not human eloquence. I hope you don't come to church to hear anything from me, from my wisdom, from my cleverness. I hope you come because, you know, every time we gather as a church, you will hear the word of God taught clearly. That is where the power is in the word of God. And someday, you may be in the position to choose a new church. Maybe you'll move away, whatever. Or you might have to choose a new pastor. Maybe I'll walk out today, get hit by a bus, and now you've got to choose a new pastor. When that day comes, when you're choosing a new church, you're choosing a new pastor, prioritize the clear and straightforward teaching of the Bible. A lot of people get very swayed by charisma, by eloquence, by someone telling them great stories, someone being very entertaining in the pulpit. Don't let that be you. Choose based on who teaches you the Bible, not just someone who uses the Bible in their sermons. Pretty much everybody does that. Choose someone who really teaches it where the whole sermon is just laying out the passage of Scripture, applying it to your life, so that you walk away each week with a clear understanding of that text of Scripture. That is a preacher who recognizes the truth of this passage, that the power of God to transform us is not in human abilities. It's not in our eloquence and our wisdom. The power is in the Word. And if you stick to a church like that long enough, 
and you let God's word work in your life, it will mature you spiritually. It'll convict you in the areas that you need change. It will encourage you. At times, it will comfort you. It'll teach you about God and his ways. It will instruct you in how to live a life that is best for you and glorifying to him. And that is how Christ becomes your wisdom, your righteousness, your sanctification, and your redemption. In other words, the power of God will transform you from the inside out. It'll change the way you think, and it'll change the way you live. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." 